Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Yasha Zaitz. In this episode, we're going to talk about chronic disease management. Chronic diseases are the results of a combination of genetic, psychological, environmental and behavioral factors. They require long-term management and often behavioral changes. Achieving long-lasting effects can be extremely difficult and digital health solutions have since the beginning been seen as an important factor in assuring success by providing patients with continuous monitoring and feedback. Omada Health is a U.S. digital behavioral medicine company that uses digital tools and personalized support to help individuals living with prediabetes, diabetes, hypertension, and musculoskeletal issues. It's been present on the market for over a decade, and in this discussion, you will hear the CEO, Sean Duffy, talk about what exactly does Omada do differently compared to traditional chronic care management providers? We discussed approaches to providing sustainable long-term chronic care management and touched upon the sharp rise in the popularity of GLP-1 medications which are used for treating diabetes but have become a popular weight loss tool for many people in the last year. Just before we begin, I'd like to introduce you to Magic Mind. They're also a sponsor of the show. Magic Mind is a drink based on matcha green tea that contains 12 active ingredients scientifically designed to improve energy, focus, decrease stress and improve mood. I drink coffee regularly, but because it's a habit, it's not actually an effective energy drink for me. I know that green tea works differently and I've been a fan of matcha for years. But if you want to prepare matcha properly, you need a special bamboo whisk and a bowl to prepare it, which is really inconvenient on the road or in the office. That's what's different with Magic Mind. It's really conveniently packed into small shots. You can take it anywhere you go, and all you have to do is shake the bottle before you drink it. If you're interested in improving your feeling of alertness and reducing your coffee intake, this might also be a product for you. Get more info at magicmind.com slash digitalhealth and make sure to use the code DIGITALHEALTH20 to get a significant discount on your purchase. I added the link and the code to the show notes. And before we dive into today's discussion, do check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Now let's dive in. Sean, hi, and thank you so much for joining me for this discussion on Faces of Digital Health, where we're going to talk about innovation in chronic care management, the experiences that you have with Omada Health. Omada Health is addressing chronic care management for very specific diseases, so diabetes, hypertension, and musculoskeletal issues. But since the audience is global, can you just very briefly describe what exactly is it that you do that's different from the traditional chronic care management? Yeah, absolutely. So Omada Health is a virtual care provider out there. I tend to call ourselves as working to really own that between care space. And the diseases that you highlighted are where we serve our members. So that's prediabetes and weight, diabetes, hypertension, musculoskeletal care. And every single one of those are areas where a digital 
first approach is not just incrementally better, but transformationally better for care outcomes. So to present a contrast to the existing models, in large part, if you have diabetes right now, they'll be handled at the point of primary care. You'll have that 15-minute visit. There'll be a check-in. The clinician might prescribe medicines, look at your A1C, suggest you lose weight, and then that's it. Maybe you come back six months later, and any clinical success relative to either lifestyle support, glucose control on an ongoing basis, medication management really does occur in that between-visit space, and that's where we strive to be excellent. And we've, in order to do that, had to engineer everything uniquely because the current healthcare ecosystem is just not set up for that, ranging from the devices, the reimbursement models, the care teams, the technology, you name it, it's all homegrown to deliver a longitudinal care experience. Can you maybe explain a little bit more what your care teams look like? So what kind of profiles do you have given the huge shortage of clinicians that we're currently facing? I'm wondering to which extent is it enough for you to work with just health coaches and to which extent do you actually need clinical providers? Yeah, yeah, so happy to. So just to give you kind of an overall sense of the Omada experience for folks listening. So imagine you have diabetes, hypertension, and you're overweight. So step one will be to send you some devices. So Omada will mail you a cellular connected scale, a blood pressure cuff, a glucometer, if indicated and needed. We'll write a script for some CGMs to get a glucose baseline. So you've got your devices. They're automatically connected to Omada. You step on the scale, you get a push notification saying that the scale is working. So it just works out of box. Then we pair you with your care team. So that includes, in that example, a health coach, a certified diabetes education and support specialist. Clearly, if you're in our MSK program, that will be a physical therapist. And so this care team works collaboratively and together to support your goals between between visits. And then the overall experience includes a health education. So there's a curricular layer that rolls out over time that is personalized against your needs and comorbidities. There's community layers. There's a goal-setting architecture, tracking. Sometimes I describe Omada as having about 10 digital health companies in one here because each of those components, if you look out in the world, you'll find that there are independent companies with those, but our secret sauce at Omada is to tie them all together in an artful way. Okay, awesome. I think that really helps with the whole understanding. And it got me wondering, I don't know if this is the data that you have, but we know that a lot of clinicians are thinking of leaving the profession because they're overburdened, especially with bureaucracy. There's obviously a lot of hope around ChatGPT and large language models this year. There's technologies that are not new that have been developed to improve the note taking. So that's, that field has advanced a lot. But still, what do you see in the space that you mentioned that your care teams are yeah. working on nutrition and health coaching? Is it difficult to get professionals? So there's plenty of labor supply in the care areas that we support our members with. And in fact, that even internally at Omada, we've taken a number of our health coaches and helped support their continuing education such that they can become diabetes education support specialists. We're not faced with the same labor challenges that the provider landscape is, but boy, you're spot on in that this is a crisis for the average health system. I think it's problem number one through 25. If you go talk to the executives of health systems right now, the U.S. would need an additional 100,000 primary care clinicians and half a million nurses to show up over the next five years if you were just going to point more people 
at the demand for services, and it's really challenging. It's the most challenging labor market I think we've ever faced in primary care. This is an area where we're getting increased interest from systems that carry the risk, that have primary care clinicians, where the answer cannot be add more to their plate. Omada can be a care partner to really support taking things off their plate. Because if you fast forward 10 years, there's no chance that a primary care clinician is the number one profession and credential responsible for managing a patient's diabetes. It just There's just not a future where that's going to be the reality. It's a, it wouldn't make sense for a whole host of reasons. So that, that's where Omada can help us support. So if we now move a little bit to the patient perspective, I think one thing that has been very promoted and very loud in 2023 is what's happening with medications which are primarily used for diabetes. And I'm talking about the GLP-1 that have now suddenly started to be prescribed also for weight loss. And it's not just that obese people are getting it prescribed. It's also that people that don't really need it that are starting to take it. And I'm wondering, did you see any impact of that trend on the patients, on the supply that was available for them? Because that's, to me, the key issue. If we suddenly run out of the supply of medications for those that really need it. So what did you observe in that sense this year? We have seen that impact with our members with diabetes. It, it does seem to be getting some somewhat better, which is heartening. So let's knock on wood that that continues. But many of our members with diabetes who were on GLP-1s or wanting to get on GLP-1s have struggled with the shortages. In the same vein, folks who are looking to use GLPs for weight loss have as well. This is where kind of a care team can be especially helpful. Obviously, we can't just make medication appear. That's not a reality, but we can help our members think through different strategies that they may not be thinking through immediately because there's the simple things, which is, hey, here's what our members are doing that are faced with this, calling a set of pharmacies because maybe there is availability. And then you can ask your clinician to reroute the script. There's thinking through different dosing considerations. These shortages we've seen tend to be more toward the maintenance higher doses. That's been our observation. For some of our members, staying on the lower doses longer can be a gap filler. And then there's just medication change strategy be it another GLP, be it a different class of diabetes meds temporarily until the GLP supply comes back on. But it's, it's been a real, you're, you're spot on, it's been a real struggle and an unfortunate struggle for patients who've really needed these medicines for diabetes and sugar control. And new studies are now coming out around the real-world data in comparison to clinical trials. And Reuters just published a news that one of the PBMs basically saw that 32% of patients that were prescribed these drugs, so semaglutide, were still taking the medicine for weight loss after a year since their initial prescriptions. The conclusion of the study was that maybe there are no long-term benefits for the individuals taking these drugs, but the cost of that care in that one year jumped like for 60% because these drugs are not cheap. Do you have any comments and thoughts around how did you experience this whole trend in also a lot of promotion that has been happening on social media around these drugs? You and I are, must be at the exact same wavelength because in the 30 minutes before this, I read that exact same <laughs> unprompted, exact same study, which was really fascinating. I think, to be honest, when I read that, I think what it speaks to is the average person who wants to use a GLP-1 for weight loss doesn't 
view it as something that they want to be on for life. I think that the R user insights support that. I think if you just poll and listen to the patient community, most people are thinking, you know what, I'll use this. Hopefully I'll get to my target. And then, great, I'm at my target. I'll keep that off. The issue is if you look at the longitudinal data of discontinuation, it's quite harrowing. There's a famous trial called the Step 1 trial. There's a Step 1 extension trial that looked at a year taking patients off the meds. They were a very steep regain curve. So the way that I and we think about it at Omada is the medications really support, if you think about food, the quantity side. GLP-1 agonists, they make you feel less hungry. They slow down gastric emptying the stomach. It does nothing without intervention to do anything about the quality. And the quality of the food and new habits and new ways of incorporating small things into your lifestyle is what gives you the best shot as a patient in if your goal is to discontinue the med, best, the best shot at keeping it off. To me, I read that and it just, boy, the evidence is right there and that you really need to have lifestyle interventions alongside these medicines. Because if you don't, per the data, the cost goes up enormously. And if the person discontinues and they regain the vast majority of the weight back, you're not going to see a long-term health benefit. I think they're breakthrough medicines. I think that they are an amazing tool in the toolkit. Like everything in life, there's never going to be a silver bullet. They're not going to be for everybody. And we need to really think about personalized strategies on different profiles of patients and really lean into doing everything we can for the patients who want to be on the medicines and don't want to have that as a lifetime thing to help help support a stable off-ramp and incorporate some great changes along the way. The challenges that you are addressing at Omada Health are very closely connected with behavioral health. And I am curious to know what are some of the things that maybe surprised you the most or some of the things that you realized in terms of what kind of technology can really help with this and to which extent is technology really the thing that helps compared to all the support that you provide with it, technology versus the implementation and use? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's interesting. So we've always felt that the panacea need, needed to be the intersection between people, real people, proactive support and technology. And that really stems from even day one at Omada. I mean, before writing a single line of code, we sat in the homes of people with prediabetes, with diabetes, and just listen to what their worlds were like and try to imagine if you're in their shoes, what would you need? And some of the answers were technology. You obviously need clinical data to support care pathways and outcomes. You needed tools, technologies, tracking kind of rich ways to through design and, and great product experiences in surface areas to create kind of value and meaning and emotional resonance were very important. But we realized you, you can't take the people out of it. And from day one, that's been the truth. And even in this evolving landscape with generative AI, there's no substitute for the human accountability that comes from being supported. There's no substitute for someone finally asking you what your health goals are. The healthcare system very irregularly does that, which is remarkable. There's no substitute of just the check-ins, the accountability, and the support. So um, we and I and the whole team love technology. We're always tip of the spear, but we also are really pragmatic that people need to be part of the equation in these chronic care areas and that the art will be the combination. You mentioned that basically you check with individuals what their health goals are. So I'm wondering to which extent can you just take what people are willing to do 
for their health because in pre-diabetes and diabetes, I guess the trickiest part is that a lot of consequences happen if you don't manage the disease in the long run. But like in that actual time, you don't really feel that something is happening with the body. And then there's just the consequences which are horrific. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's kind of an area, just to use an example, we, Amato was really first in market to have a fully integrated continuous glucose monitor with kind of amazing partnership with Abbott for their Freestyle Libre. Now, that's one example of ways where you can take data and physiology and make it visible and tangible, even if it's asymptomatic. And so you can experiment with your body a little bit and see that when you eat this or drink that, you get a sugar spike that doesn't come down for a while. And that helps build a little bit of pattern recognition. That is something that, that can be done. And I think what you're hitting at is the fact that a lot, not it's not always, but many people with type 2 diabetes can be largely asymptomatic. It's, that makes it very hard to know your, how you're tracking. It makes it very hard to remember to take your medicines. It really doesn't give you that daily cue that you need to address something you know, that's happening in your body that's very important. You get these long-term catastrophic outcomes. And so that's where that proactive between-visit care really is required and it's especially required in asymptomatic care areas. How much weight would you put on motivation when it comes to behavioral health and how do you measure long-term impact of the interventions? The reason I'm asking this is, as you mentioned before, with the GLP-1 inhibitors, somebody might hit their targeted weight and they'll be fine with that and just continue with the lifestyle that they see fit at that point. And I think with chronic patients, after a while, they learn what the rules are and they know how what they need to do in order to be okay. But that, to a degree, can also give a false sense of reassurance where you always feel that basically you know yourself best and you know what's best for you. And that can delay potential interventions that should have happened because you think you're okay, but you're not. And you think you're okay because, you know, you've been a chronic patient for 10 years and who would know better than you if you know what I'm trying to hit. So can you talk a little bit about that problem, especially since if patients stop using providers because they change their jobs, how do you mitigate those types of risks? Yeah, so on your motivation question, the one thing we're always cautious is not forget that's actually malleable. And someone may have literally signed up for Amata because they're looking at our cool devices and they're like, oh, you know what, I wouldn't mind a new glucometer and supplies. And that's actually okay. Because all of a sudden now they're getting to know their coach, their care team. They're maybe thinking about their health differently. They're the, we're asking them about their goals. I think the reflex of the clinical community to be like, oh, well, someone's goal is probably to reduce their A1C, and it's usually not that. It's, it'd be great to actually... I was at the the amusement park with my grandkids, and I had just way more trouble than I was hoping walking around with them. That would be great to not feel that. <laughs> so, so really kind of unpacking the specific goals and circumstances in their life that they, they want to achieve is really important. And you have to marry that with what's practical and where they're at and, and what steps can be taken and what they can actually fit into their life. And that's, that's the art. And that's what the belief here is Ramada in that there can't, there is never going to be again, that silver bullet, that one size fits all. Because if you want to shoot towards sustainability, you have to map into what's practical and you have to take a behaviorally forward approach to 
slowly changing patterns at a level where it almost becomes part of your self-identity. And we, we experienced it. Like one of the classic early examples for Amada was one of our members, after being in the program for six months, kind of messaged her care team and was like, I had this funny experience. I was at the grocery store. I had my cart, was checking out. I looked at the person in front of me and I looked what was in their cart. And my immediate mental reaction was like, I cannot believe you're putting that in your body. And then I realized six months ago, that was me. And it's just, it's no longer part of my self-identity. And so everyone's had something like that. It's, I don't remember when, but there was a point in time where I would drink a soda. I'm like not a person that consumes calories by liquid anymore. It's just, it's just not who I, it's not part of me. And that mindset shift is so hard to do, but it's doable. And by doing that's how you get, that's how you get to the sustainability. I can totally identify with that. Like with me is if I want calories, I'm going to, and sweet, I'm just going to take chocolate. Like why would I waste energy with yeah. uh, sweet drinks? Yeah. You also reminded me on two statements that kind of are still with me in the last two years. And one was from a diabetes patient advocate, David Cliff, who said for a documentary I did two years ago around medication safety. And he said, what patients want in the first place is not to be patients at all. Mm -hmm. If you can manage to do, th just minimize the interventions, minimize the effort that they need to put into taking exactly. care of their health or health pro healthcare providers, then you will you will succeed. And kind of the other yeah. thought was when you said that patients are not primarily thinking about their A1C in diabetes. And there was an example mentioned by one of the psychologists at HIMSS two years ago when she said that it's really important to understand what the quality of life means to patients. And that, say you have a, there was a patient where basically that had perfect levels of A1C and if you just looked at the numbers of that patient, you would think that something must have significantly changed because the health indicators are awesome. You could say you've never been better, these results look great, what did you do? But instead, I think that doctor or that psychologist asked, there seem to be significant changes, what's going on? And basically that patient said that his partner is currently suffering from cancer, so that patient felt bad for eating in front of his partner, and there was significant yeah. stress involved in that. So that's the last yep. moment where you would want your health care provider or health coach to say, you're doing great, keep doing what you're doing. Oh, precisely. Yeah, it's a very powerful story, and, uh, and, it's, and there's so many truths in it. And in any chronic care, you need active support and actually needs to change because people go through ebbs in life and you'll lose your job and need to move your apartments and that's a moment where you may be able to like take less on your plate and then there's moments of more stability having a sidekick and a layer to help support your chronic care goals and outcomes that can ebb and flow and change and move with you as you go through various moments moments in life is, a, is really really important and the entire u.s healthcare system is not operationally organized to be able to do that. Speaking of the U.S. healthcare system, can you talk a little bit about the cost management and reduction that you managed to measure so far? What's often mentioned, especially when it comes to prevention in the U.S. healthcare system, is that basically one healthcare insurance is going to invest into the savings for another healthcare insurance because people change jobs 
and change healthcare providers and insurance companies. So what have you found out so far in terms of costs? Yes, it's obviously kind of an important part of Omada's value proposition. So we have 25 peer-reviewed studies, including many that look at cost and economics. So we approach it in two ways. There's the upstream data and modeling that we'll present to prospects. And so obviously every care line is a little bit different. Pre-diabetes and weight is different than hypertension, diabetes, hypertension, MSK. But generally speaking, with a rubric on the lower on the lower end inside of a year, the models will indicate eight nine hundred dollars of savings around year three three thousand. So that's the ballpark. Now you can't just support everybody. The we you know we have recommendations on BMI thresholds and who who we'd recommend be eligible for the intervention, which helps support kind of the economic case. Typically, when we roll out to an organization, it's not for every single person who's just interested in losing weight for X Y reason. You really want to target folks who are at higher metabolic risk, even in the even in kind of the prevention pre-diabetes weight side, in order to ensure care outcomes. And, and we found that to be really compelling to the market. And there's also this interesting reflection. It's like the uh, I'm blessed in that we actually have the data. We can show economic savings even post-sale. We can partner with our clients, but very little about healthcare has an ROI. There's <laughs> and employers are paying for primary care visits that are three, four hundred dollars where there's no explicit ROI. The vast majority of healthcare services, you can't quantify any savings. And that's why healthcare is such a big piece of our GDP collectively. So that's one of the power of digital interventions and programs like ours. And that's, I think, one of the reasons we're feeling pull from the market. It's, wow, actually, this is great because way more savings opportunity here than what I'm shown with the rest of the healthcare spend that I'm actually supporting as an employer. And my employees are going to love it. This is, this is different. This is a delightful, interesting experience. Is there anything that you could add in terms of what kind of findings have been most surprising to you, given that in terms of chronic care management? So you've been operating in this space for over a decade. So what kind of surprised you the most so far or you think is maybe interesting to share and gives us food for thought in terms of how healthcare could be improved? Most of the big surprises happened in the very, very early days. And again, just because we wanted to make sure to really listen and ha- and imagine what would or wouldn't work for a person. I think the biggest aha was just a absolute pragmatic recognition that there's never going to be a silver bullet. And I, I always sometimes call it the single instrument fallacy. There's sometimes a prayer in digital health that, oh my gosh, I'm going to build like the world's best like food tracker. I'm going to build the best activity tracker. I'm going to build the best curriculum content. I'm going to build a great coaching experience. And there's evidence that any one of those single instruments doesn't yield the result. There's RCTs that look at some of the best food trackers out of the market that are a null result because it's kind of one piece of it. And so that I think was the biggest surprise. It was, and it was a little bit harrowing. We were early on just reflecting like, interesting, we're going to have to take a full stack approach. We're going to have to build out an entire experience that includes all of these components. But we just recognized that there was going to be no other way. It's so hard to get any outcome at all in this space. That just became the job to be done, and we've stayed true to that ever since. And you've been in the space for a very long time with many good practices to share. So one question that I might want to conclude this discussion with is, what do you think other care providers could but aren't copying from you and your approach to chronic care management? This is tough for the average provider. Now, you can do it under a risk contract, but one of the classic challenges right now in care operations is we've not moved from, in large part, paying for synchronous time. 
So that's kind of the concept of a visit. It doesn't matter if it's in person or virtual. Most of fee-for-service billing is set up for synchronous time. The, the CPT code infrastructure set up for charging for units of time. And the challenge with that is the entire preference of the globe has shifted from synchronous to asynchronous. And if you talk to the average primary care clinician right now in the U.S., their job is really not fun. They're like doing their visits during the day, either virtual or in person, and then nights and weekends are trying to burn down their MyCharts messages unpaid. So the I think a good step one without overthinking for any health system, now again, you can really only do this under a value-based contract right now, is to just really lean into finding paths to asynchronous care and thinking through how do we do this? How do we incentivize our physicians? How do we carve out the time? What are the expectations? What should be done async versus sync? And that automatically, that alone can enable a far better care experience because you're getting much closer to how people want to engage with the world right now. Everyone probably has experienced those the hotel IT stack that allows you to text the front desk now. Maybe you haven't. That's a newer thing. It's amazing. It's people so versus calls. So the, that would be the suggestion. Just see if there's ways to get creative in how you approach fostering and leaning into async care versus fighting it. And maybe just to add to that, to which extent do you think that providers can go into that direction and to which extent should the whole payment system that's moving towards value-based care, or there's at least a lot of talking about value-based care, basically encourage that to happen faster? Yeah, the payment system, if I could wave a magic wand and change one thing right now, that would be the biggest lever for the U.S. healthcare system. It would be to be able to find billing pathways that mirror synchronous care for async. Because even if you did that on a fee-for-service side, what you'd find it, it was actually, that would actually foster more of a shift to value. So if you talk to these providers that are part fee-for-service, part value-based, it's very hard to change the care operations because you can't credibly have a clinician and a care team practice in totally different ways based on the insurance design of whoever walks in the clinic. It doesn't work. The fact that fee-for-service billing is still in the dinosaur world of paying for units of time and value-based would support flexible care models that could include asynchronous creates a huge headwind for providers that are open to taking on more risk, want to pursue more value contracts because you're stuck. So if you were able to somehow enable async billing, even in fee-for-service, that would actually push more value into the healthcare system in a positive way. Uh, it's, I do hope that in, in time we get there. It's really needed. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned. <laughs>